The scripture reading for this morning is in the book of Acts, chapter 4, on the page 887 in your pew Bibles. Acts chapter 4, we're going to read together from the verse 5 to the verse 12. Acts chapter 4, verse 5 to 12. Would you please stand for the reading of the word of God? Acts 4, 5 to 12. Let's read together. The next day, the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas and a high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all who were in the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people's the elders, if you are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick, and I ask how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the death. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, one day all the things that we have as precious in our lives will be gone. Our possessions, our assets, but the words that we just read will be there forever because they are the words of God. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. After the earthquake in Haiti last year, we received uh, a call or email from the Outreach Foundation inviting us to be part of a mission trip to Haiti to see and understand the situation there in a better way. Rob Weinengarter, the preacher today, was the one who invited me to be part of that. And uh, sometime later, we see that signs of hope in the midst of brokenness. This is the video and experience that we as a pillar have had with other churches in the light uh, in the last year in Haiti. There's so many things that I would talk a week about going to Haiti and what, what the event meant to me and how it's changed my life and all the things that we did and the extraordinary experiences that we have. It took a while, a lot of prayer, uh, a lot of prayer from friends, a lot of contemplating, realizing that uh, I was 66 at the time, now 67, would probably be the oldest. I was planning another trip. I was going somewhere else on vacation with my sister and God was like, no, I, I'm gonna talk to you about Haiti. I had some discouragement from some of my friends 
saying, why would you go to Haiti? And why would you pay to go on a trip to help people? And other various questions like that. What, what am I going to be doing? I don't do manual labor. <laughs> I, it's going to be hot. There's going to be bugs. Um, but what do you want me to do, God? So I prayed about it. I had encouragement. I had God's grace and encouragement from members here at Bel Air and made the decision to, to go, of which I have no regrets. Through the next couple of weeks, it was God stripping down all of my expectations, all of the notions of why I was going, and just kind of leaving me as an open vessel of, let me tell you, let me show you what I want you to do. Let me show you the good things I have in store for you. Go with no expectations, clear your mind, clear your heart, and just be there to love. I think we adjusted, and each night we sat around uh, our group of 15, and um, we thank the Lord for the blessings uh, that we had received that day. We shared experiences about learning to get to know each other better, and we became a, just a, a, a terrific group. We, we were digging trenches, we were carrying stone, we were mixing concrete by hand, and yet we were singing and we were praising God, and we were working with um, the Haitian builders. And it took four languages to build a wall in Haiti. It took Creole, French, Spanish, and English. We didn't need our translators because between our group and the Haitians, we could, you know, grande, grande stone, piquito, piquito. So we understood. Then seeing the impact that we made, as small as it may be, with such few people and such an immense task, seeing the difference that we made. We even went into a tent city, which they have never done before. Our partners took us in. We went into the tent city and we just stood there and we sang worship. Like little kids around us and people coming out of their tents and just, they didn't understand, but they knew we were singing to God and it was amazing. I walked away with one of the most significant experiences in my life and I am convinced that um, that I had God's blessing to get me through that week and uh, I'm sure you will too and I know there's lots of trips coming up next year that that are available and I would encourage you all no matter what your age or physical shape to consider going on one In this last year, more than 100 people from five congregations in LA have gone to a Haiti. They raised about almost $100,000 and have helped to rebuild a church in, uh, in Port-au-Prince outside uh, the area that earthquake hit last year. What a great blessing to be part of it. I have the great privilege to introduce you our guest speaker this morning. His name is Rob Weiningarder. Rob has been a pastor, senior pastor in Ohio and in Indiana. And in 2002, he was called to be the executive director for the Outreach Foundation. The Outreach Foundation is an organization that connects Presbyterians in the United States and throughout the world in God's, in God's mission. They are highly respected in this country and around the nations for the work that they do in building the capacity of national churches all over the world in leadership development, evangelism, compassion and justice ministries, working with children at risk in different places in the world. Rob is respected as a strategist for missions within our denomination, the Presbyterian Church, has traveled all over the world to preach the good news, to meet with partners, encourage, encourage them in their ministry. He is highly respected as a mission leader and a strategist. But I know Rob. 
that besides being this great leader that recognized in our denomination around the world, he's a man of God. And his walk with Christ, his sense of integrity as we build God's mission together has been an inspiration in my own life. Rob has been one of my mentors in my life, the way that I want to work and serve Christ in mission work around the world. Rob lives in Tennessee, is it? In Tennessee with his wife, Terry, who could not be here with us today. And Rob will be here with us in the Bel Air until Tuesday of this week. Would you please welcome Rob Weiningardner, our guest speaker this morning. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for uh, many leaders who are inspiration and challenge in their lives, the way that they lead, but above all, the way that they love you and your work. We thank you at Bel Air today for the privilege of having Rob here with us. I ask that he continues to bless his ministry, his work with the Eldred Foundation, and many other tasks that he has been involved. Thank you so much for having him here with us. And as he speaks your word this morning, Challenge us, transform us, bring us close to you. In Christ Jesus, amen. 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 Thank you. Well, what a privilege it is to be here with you this morning. A privilege and an honor to worship with the Bel Air congregation, with those of you here in the sanctuary and those gathered in the discipleship center. We're so thankful for your congregation and for opportunities that we've had to partner with you in God's mission around the world. And we thank you for sharing Enoch Desis with us. He serves as a trustee of the Outreach Foundation, a dear brother in Christ who shapes the vision for our work in the world and helps us to be wise and to do our work well. So thank you for your welcome. Peter and John were in prison because they healed a lame man one day when they were walking to the temple. All the attraction that this miracle brought to them, the crowd that gathered upset the authorities. They weren't sure what to do with these troublemakers, these heretics, these followers of Jesus, and so they threw them in prison. The next day they met with the Sanhedrin, that same body of men who had sentenced Jesus to death. The Sanhedrin wasn't sure what to do with them because they had the favor of the crowds and the Sanhedrin didn't want to upset the people. And so what they decided that they would do would be to tell these men that they should no longer speak in the name of Jesus. And I love what Peter and John said in reply. They said, whether it is right in your eyes to obey God or you, you can decide. But for us, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. There is, friends, only one thing to do with good news, and that is to share it with others. And the good news of the gospel is the best news of all. When I was in seminary in Pittsburgh decades ago, one afternoon I was walking through the seminary neighborhood, and something glinted in the crack of the sidewalk. It caught my eye. The sun had caught something. I reached down and found a brilliant cut clear gemstone. And questions flooded my mind. Who had lost it? How would I find them? If I didn't find them, would it cover my tuition? (laughs) 
And then more soberly, was it real? Was it real? 500 years ago, that's one of the questions that John Calvin and his followers were working on. How do you recognize a real church? And over a period of time, they came up with what they called the marks of the church. And the marks of the church are these, the, the word of God purely preached and heard, the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, and church discipline that's exercised in a way that God's word prescribes. And those reformed marks of the church remain helpful to us even today as we think about what it means to be congregations who are faithfully following Jesus Christ. But I believe that if Calvin were alive today and experienced how the West, Europe and North America, is now itself a mission field, I think Calvin would agree that it might be time to add a fourth mark, and that is mission. We are called by God to participate in the things that God is doing in the world, as our Heavenly Father is about the work of gathering up all things in Christ Jesus. To be a real church is to live out the truth that we are sent out into the world in Jesus' name, to show and tell his love. Do you you remember Jesus' last words to the disciples before he handed over his work to them and ascended to his heavenly Father? Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, into the ends of the earth. And what we see being described by Luke in the early chapters of the book of Acts is a community of Jesus' followers who gathered around him and understood themselves and organized their lives around their primary purpose of being God's agent of mission in the world. They focused on displaying the glory and grace of God. Now, in my ministry, as Enoch suggested, it's my privilege to travel across the country and all around the world, and I've come to believe that there are basically two kinds of churches. There are churches who behave as though they exist primarily for the sake of themselves. And there are churches who behave as though they exist primarily for the sake of others. Now notice I'm talking about behavior. I'm not talking about what we say, but rather what we do, how we live, how our life together and our presence in the world displays the very glory and grace of God. And as I learn more and more about the Bel Air congregation, and how you are reaching into this community and to the ends of the earth to bless others in Jesus' name, I thank God for you. Bless you for the ways that you are making God's love real in concrete ways, in broken lives, close to home and far away. It was 1890 when Samuel Moffat was sent by the Presbyterian Church to Korea to take up mission work as a missionary of our church. He looked around and tried to decide where he would begin, and he decided to take up his work near Pyongyang. He was the first Protestant missionary serving in inland Korea. Well, it was a difficult work. He faced all kinds of challenges. He was slandered and spat upon and shunned, one time even stoned by a group of men seeking to take his life. But Moffat remained steadfast. He knew that the Lord had put him there. He started churches. He founded schools. He brought people together around the living Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, the time came in his ministry when the first graduating class 
concluded their studies at the seminary that Moffat had founded in Pyongyang. There were seven men, and they graduated not with a sense of self-importance, but a sense of the importance of this moment, because they knew that they were going to be the leaders of a new church, the Korean Presbyterian Church, and they wanted to get it right. And so they started asking questions such as this, what do real churches do? What shall we do? And as Koreans are wont to do, they went away to a mountain to pray. And they read God's word and they reasoned with one another. And they came to a decision together that they would send a missionary because that's what real churches do. They reach out to show and tell the love of Jesus Christ. But which one of them would go? And six, all at once, pointed to a colleague, Rigi Pong, and they said, you will go. He said, I'll go, but why me? They said, because you were the leader of that group that tried to stone Dr. Moffat. And he had been. Rigi Pong was sent to China. He began work that continues to bear fruit even to this day. And interestingly, in his ministry, he faced the same kind of opposition, the same kind of pressure that Dr. Moffat had met when he took up his work in Korea. When Moffat began at Pyongyang, he couldn't find a single believer in Jesus. When he retired, there were hundreds and hundreds of congregations across the region. But you know, perhaps the greater legacy of Moffat and his work is a Korean church that has become perhaps the greatest sending church in the history of the Christian movement, reaching out to show and tell the love of Jesus Christ. I love this story from Acts, where Jesus' followers say, as, as Peter puts it, they cannot help but speak about what they have seen and heard. There is only one thing to do with good news, and that is to share it with others. And what we see described in these chapters, these early chapters of Acts, is showing and telling. It's not just followers of Jesus talking about him, bearing testimony to him, as important as that is. They also, in their manner of life together, in, in the character and quality of their service to others, they are demonstrating the love about which they speak. They are incarnating in the life of a community and in their pattern of giving their life away for the sake of others. They are exhibiting the very love of God in Jesus Christ to those around them. Sam Moffat, who went to Korea, had a grandson named Sam Moffat, and that Sam also served as a missionary in China and Korea. And he talks about the importance of words and deeds that go together, of showing and telling this good news of Jesus Christ. Sam Moffat, a retired professor at Princeton Seminary, says, words without deeds are not credible. Deeds without words are not comprehensible. And so in just that same way, as you reach into this community and as you reach out into the world, you are speaking about the good news of Jesus and you are serving people that ways that convince them of the truth of your words. And as you go out into this community and serve and bind up those who are broken, as you make God's love real in their lives in concrete ways, you are speaking words of Jesus, that those whom you serve would know that you love because 
God first loved you. In the fourth chapter of Acts, we see how people are drawn to the life of the Christian community. That how, as the disciples show and tell the love of Jesus, others are drawn to the risen Lord. By this time, some 5,000 men had become disciples, in addition to the women and children. And what we see described is people being drawn to a new kind of community, a community of sharing and serving, a hopeful community. You know, it's been observed that one of the most radical moments in the life of the Roman Empire was when the church gathered for worship on the Lord's Day. Because all of the barriers that had traditionally separated people in Roman and Palestinian society began one by one to come down. The barriers that divided men and women, the barriers that divided adults and children, barriers that divided Greek and Jew, slave and free, all gathered together around the risen Lord to give him thanks and praise. God is at work in the world in amazing ways. It's our privilege as the Outreach Foundation to partner with Bel Air in China and in Haiti and in India. And again, we're so thankful for the mission vision of your congregation and for the ways that you're serving. One of the places that the Outreach Foundation is deeply involved is in Ethiopia. And the amazing, astonishing work that God is doing around the world is clearly evident in this country in the Horn of Africa. The Presbyterian partner in Ethiopia is the Ethiopian Evangelical Church Mekanayesu. Mekanayesu means house of Jesus. So as they invite people to come and share in their life and experience God's love, they're inviting them in to the house of Jesus. It's a denomination comprised of Presbyterians and Lutherans in that context. Fifty years ago, that denomination had 50,000 members. When I was there in February, I was told it's now 5.6 million members. It's extraordinary the things that God is doing. The late Harold Kurtz, a dear friend of mine and mission leader in the Presbyterian family, said, the Holy Spirit is out of control, you know, which even makes the Ethiopians nervous because they're Presbyterians. <laughs> Did you know that the church in China is probably growing faster than the church has ever grown at any time in any place over a sustained period of time. God is doing amazing, astonishing things, and Bel Air is a part of that work that God is doing. The fact that Peter and John were under arrest reminds us that the call to radically refocus one's life on the risen Christ is not always a call that is welcome. The church was a real threat to the religious authorities who wanted to maintain not only position and power but, but control over others. There were doctrinal issues. The Sadducees you know, didn't believe in the resurrection. and They were the landed gentry. They had compromised with Rome to consolidate their power and they didn't want these, this new sect upsetting the apple cart and threatening their power. But their order to the disciples not to speak in Jesus' name is an expression of their weakness, and it only serves to embolden Jesus' followers. Show and tell, words and deeds. It's not about us. Peter and John make it clear. It is about Jesus. 
Late last year, I had the opportunity to travel for the first time to Niger, just at the southern central part of the Sahara Desert in Africa. And I met a friend of mine, the Reverend Hassan Dan Karami, while I was there. Niger is a country that is about 1% Christian and 99% Muslim. It's ranked next to the bottom at the, of the UN Human Development Index. The fact that most of the Christians there used to be Muslims helps them know how to show and tell Jesus' love to their neighbors. And a Presbyterian denomination in Niger of about 6,000 members has embarked on a, a winsome and a creative welcome effort to build schools to serve the communities in which the Christians live. There are schools that are open to all the children. And because of the quality of the education that is offered through these Christian schools, many Muslim families want to send their children as well to study in these schools. Hassan says, there are good relations and the door is really open for the gospel. In fact, they're, they're trying now to put up a school in Niamey in the capital of Niger. They're looking for another $80,000, and my hope is that we will be able to help them to strengthen their hand for this amazing opportunity that the Lord has set before them. But, but, but to jump back in the story, Hassan began memorizing the Quran when he was three years old. He was a great student. He finally was given a scholarship to a prestigious school. There were 800 students there. And as he went there as a teenager, he was, he was discouraged by the impiety of his fellow students. And so with the local imam and some of the clerics, he began mounting conferences to encourage the Muslim students to be more faithful in their religion. One day he was leading a student conference and they were talking about the prophets and one of the few Christian students in the school stood and gave an eloquent answer to one of the questions about the prophets that Hassan had asked. Later on, he wanted to know how that Christian had known so much. And he discovered that it was from reading the Bible. Now, Hassan had been warned about the Christian's black book, to stay away from the black book. But he got his hands on one and he began reading it. He read it under the cover of night for two years, but he couldn't get past these words in Ephesians. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. He couldn't get past those words. And so one day he went to the mosque's Quranic teacher, and he said, what about my salvation? And the teacher said, we don't know. And Hassan said, you know all the things that I'm doing, how I serve the school, how I serve the faith. And the teacher said, I, I, we cannot know. And Hassan went back to his room and he got down on his knees and with all of the understanding that he had and all of the longing that he felt, he got down on his knees and gave his life to Jesus Christ. And, and then he did what he knew he must do. He went and told his father. And then his father did what he knew he must do. He went and told the town council. And then the town council did what they knew they must do. They decreed that Hassan should be put to death. Hassan thinks it's because his father was such an esteemed member of the council that they, they reconsidered and they decided instead to send him away to a town 700 kilometers distant. His twin brother went with him 
Hassan didn't know that his task was to bring Hassan back to the true faith. But they'd been there for two years, and Hassan's brother came and said to him, Hassan, I think that I too have become a follower of Jesus. And then they went and did what they knew they must do. They told their father. When I met Hassan nine years ago, he was the general secretary of the church in Ghana. His brother was an elder. Many members of that village town council are also members of the church. God is at work in Niger in some exciting ways. And if Hassan and his brother and those elders were here today, they would say to you, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. Like some of you, I spend a good bit of time on airplanes. And I want to tell you about one, one on which I hope someday to ride. An Indian Airlines engineer named Bahadur Chand Gupta retired several years ago, and he decided to set up a little business. He figured that in a country where there are a billion people, most of whom would never have a chance to ride on an airplane, he could make a little money by setting up a business and offering airplane rides. And so he bought a broken-down Airbus 300 and fixed it up in order to give the rides. Each Saturday, he sells tickets and people come. He sits in the cockpit and gives announcements on a portable PA system. His wife is the flight attendant, and after they reach cruising altitude, she serves tea and, and, and cookies on a little silver service tray cart that goes up and down the aisle. Uh, they, they encounter turbulence and are told to put their seatbelts on, and before they land, they get the obligatory announcement about seat backs and tray tables in their full upright and locked position, and then they get off. The plane is parked in a field south of Delhi. It's missing a wing and the tail section. You see, the people get on the plane and pretend. Now, in the article that I read about this, one young woman who was interviewed after a Gupta flight said, and, and I, I do not mean to mock her, she said, it was more beautiful than I ever imagined. But just imagine if she had really flown, if that plane had found a, a, a rest upon the winds and soared in the skies, imagine how her spirit would have soared. Sometimes when I think about the church, I, I think about that plane sitting on the ground a few meters off the ground so far below what it was intended to be and do. Friends, we are sent. You, each one of you is sent. That is why God brings us together in beautiful sanctuaries like this and in discipleship centers and in humbler churches around this globe. We are brought together as God's people in Christ Jesus in order to be equipped to live out in the world in ways that disclose God's glory and grace. And I want to speak a word to each one of you because God can use each of you as God can use no one else, given your passion and your experience and your gifts and your network of relationships and your resources, the things that enervate you, the things that motivate you, God can use you in the places where you play, in the places where you work, in the places where you study, in the neighborhoods in which you live. God can use you, each one of you, as God can use no one else. And it may be in Haiti or Niger or East L.A., 
but God desires to use each one of us to show and tell the love of Jesus Christ, to give in ways that bless, to bind up the brokenhearted, to speak a word of hope to a world that is broken and afraid, to show his love and tell of his amazing grace. I still have that gemstone I found more than 30 years ago. It's a beautiful cubic zirconia. I have to admit it was a bit of a disappointment. May our lives and our churches be found to be genuine, to be found to be the real thing, showing and telling the love of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your people who gather in this place, this community called Bel Air Presbyterian Church. Continue to stretch the imagination and extend the reach of each one of us that we might be found faithful and real, showing and telling the love of Jesus Christ to the glory of his name. Amen. Good job, brother. You should be a preacher. That's great, man. That's wonderful. Thank you, Rob. Before we uh, ask our ushers to come forward uh, for our offering, I'll tell you a special uh, offering that we're taking today. Do you know, uh, can we get the slide again of our partners up there? Is that possible to do, Dan? That uh, it's, uh, I want you to see one of these. I want your eyes to fall on one of them. And I want you to pray for them for the next two weeks. You got one? You have one up there? Some of these partners are also helping us. We're creating a new thing called the Peace Journey. And that is, uh, you know, we've been working with trying to help the homeless. We're the homeless capital of the nation with Imaginelli and other ministries. We're also the gang capital. And how do you bring peace between these rival gangs? We are working together with LA Unified and some other organizations to begin something where we take gang members, send them to our partners in the Congo for six months. Over five million people have been killed in the Congo. That's five Rwandas in the tribal wars that are there. And those that have come together and have learned how to make peace with that and then bring them back to L.A., for these rival territories to help bring the peace of Christ. There's a little uh, card in the back that's brown, that's for that offering, the white is for your regular one, and uh, again, I just thank you for uh, the generosity that you have given here at Bel Air. Uh, We as all churches are struggling financially, and yet we continue to believe that those that honor and reaching out to the Lord, that God will honor. Amen? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for your word of how it encourages and, Lord, motivates us, how it comforts us. Thank you, God, that every one of us in here, Lord, are so precious in your eyes that we can do only what we can do, and you don't ask any more than that, but you ask us to do that, Lord. So I pray, Lord, as we thank you for our partners, Lord, that are working, to, that we share with on our team and our spiritual family to make this a city that loves you, Lord, and loves your son. And so, God, I thank you as we give to this, Lord, many that have the ability to give a lot, God, but you give them the wisdom of generosity. And Lord, those that are struggling to even make bills, God, give them faith and peace. Help them to honor you with what they do have, not what they don't. And above all, may Christ be glorified. For his sake we pray. Amen.